online at kpfa.org. It is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. And welcome to Cover to Cover, or in this case, maybe it's almost more like frame to frame or cell to cell. My name is Raina Cowan. Uh, this is my first show back at KPFA after um, the end of the morning show of about 14 months ago, 15 months ago. And I will now be your host on uh, some Fridays for this version of Cover to Cover where we feature and think about issues relating to film. Um, I thought for the first show, I wanted to start about a film that both was really relevant to the Bay Area and to different political issues. It's the film entitled Crime After Crime, and it's a, a film that looks at the issue of domestic violence through the legal justice system in a way that uh, is quite astounding, what it covers and and. What happens in this film? It's quite amazing. It tells the story of Debbie Piegler, who um, started dating someone when she was 15, and he was murdered. She was charged with first-degree murder and for a crime that really she should have been in prison for for about six years at the most. Uh, she was in prison for over 20 years. And uh, what happened is two attorneys, joined by the Habeas Project in San Francisco, wound up working pro bono for a number of years to help get her freed and this is the film that tells the story it's directed by Bay Area filmmaker Yoav Potash and he's with us on phone so first I want to welcome you Yoav to KPFA Hi, Rena. Thanks for having me. Uh, he has made a series of documentaries that are on PBS stations, and this is his feature-length film that won the Golden Gate Award at the San Francisco International Film Festival. And we're also joined by Joshua Saffron, who is uh, one of the attorneys, one of the two attorneys that is featured in the film and is working tirelessly um, to get Deborah released. So why don't we start with you, Yoav? What inspired you to get involved in this project, which I think initially seemed like it was going to be a more short-term kind of film? <laughs> yes, it definitely did seem like it would be a, a shorter amount of time at first, uh, because actually, as I got in to making the film, it looked like Deborah would be released um, pretty shortly thereafter, and then everything changed and uh, the the goalposts sort of got moved um but but what really attracted me to making the film i would say was was deborah herself uh when joshua who i'm sure will speak in just a moment uh first told me about this case and that he was representing a woman who was in prison who was connected to a murder but was over sentenced and overcharged um at first uh, I, you know, it didn't jump out at me the way a case might jump out at you if, if someone tells you this person is wrongfully convicted, they had nothing to do with the crime, there's an innocent person in prison. Um, but once he told me more details, I, I agreed to at least meet her, hear her story, and from the moment I did that, I was really hooked. Uh, because just by speaking with her, I could tell 
Debbie Piegler as someone who had lived through hell in terms of abuse and in terms of the way she was uh, treated by the justice system, but at the same time was an uplifting and inspiring person to be around. She was leading the gospel choir at the prison. She was doing everything possible to lead a positive life from behind bars, and to me that was very attractive as a human being as well as a storyteller. So from that, you know, the moment that the gates slammed shut after my first visit to the prison, uh, I knew I was making a film and I knew I was sort of all in. Uh, but as you said, I thought it would take about a year to make the film and it ended up taking five and a half. That's amazing. Well, Joshua, you know, when you first got involved, you were uh, a pro bono attorney. And what did you know about this case? Uh, because it seems like this is sort of a Shakespearean tale uh, that just unfolds in so many interesting directions. But at the very beginning, what did you think you were getting yourself in for? Raina, thanks for having me. You know, I think it's the same. It was the same theme with me that I initially thought you know, this was maybe about a six month to a year commitment, and a, I I put in a, a budget of about five thousand dollars to uh, to litigate this case. And this case came uh, as a result of a new law which passed in two thousand two, which allowed. Um, incarcerated survivors of domestic violence who were in prison for life or, or for, for long terms to tell, finally get to tell their story because the law had never allowed for this kind of a intimate partner defense, intimate partner battering defense to come forward. And uh, I figured, hey, you know, the California legislature has passed a new law. It targets a very small group of women and, and allows these, these specific women to tell their story. So, you know, it's going to be pretty pretty simple. Uh, the Habeas Project was a group of uh, volunteers who went through and interviewed various women, and they identified a handful of women who might be eligible. And they contacted uh, the law firm that I was at and said, do you guys want to take a case? And my partner, Nadia Costa, and I said, yeah, sure, you know, we'll take we'll take a case. And at the time, we thought, you know, hey, we get a, get an, uh, a, what we considered an innocent woman out of prison relatively quickly. We, we feel good about ourselves. She's free, re, you know, reconnected with her family, and we, we move on. And, and instead, for us, it turned into a seven-year legal odyssey with uh, multiple trips up and down to the California Court of Appeal and um, ultimately uh, a, a, a real street fight with the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office uh, where we were ultimately successful in getting them um, recused, removed from the case for disqualifying conflicts of interest, all 1,000 attorneys of the LADA's office. So it was, it was a real struggle. And of course, in the middle of, of all that was, was Deborah herself, who was this, um, incredibly charismatic, wonderful woman who was uh, locked behind bars unjustly. And it really, um, ate us up inside. And, but she really inspired us to keep going. Well, maybe this is a good moment to, be introduced to Deborah. So why don't we have Deborah introduce herself? Um, this is the beginning of the film, and we can hear this and then uh, talk some more. Hi. Hi. My name is Deborah Peebler, and I was convicted of first degree murder, sentenced to 25 years to life. Um, Nadia Costa and I began representing Deborah Piegler shortly after California became the first state in the nation to adopt a law specifically designed to help incarcerated survivors of domestic violence win their freedom. It's a huge problem, a national problem, probably an international problem, and this law is just the first step. 
Debbie was connected to the murder of the man that abused her, but the evidence of that abuse was never presented to the court. And if she had been charged appropriately, she would have served a maximum of six years in prison. Instead, by the time we took her case, she had already been in for 20 years and been denied release by the parole board twice. This isn't a case where Debbie Piegler didn't have anything to do with the crime. But when you look at all of the facts and circumstances surrounding what occurred, any reasonable court, any reasonable parole board, and any reasonable person would conclude that she has served enough time and she should be released from prison. That's the choir in the prison of singing. Now, what's also really interesting about this film is, Yoav, you are the director of the film, and um, but you were also a character in the film in this very interesting way because there was a way where you had to figure out how to get into the prison to do the filming. And uh, there's a couple of times when we see you actually on screen trying to get more information for the film. And so you sort of become this almost... Uh, a romantic figure of someone searching for truth and justice, <laughs> which is sort of the antithetical to the idea of, you know, the documentary as the the neutral part. You are actually helping try to uncover something. And um, I know, I mean, I've talked about documentaries for years, and I know that this idea of somebody being neutral is really an illusion. But I want to think about with you this process for you of what you were doing and how how you were thinking about your different roles as the story was unfolding. Because it seemed like at many times, for example, you're working really closely with you know Nadia and Joshua in terms of helping Debbie get her freedom, as well as being the film Maker as well as doing a documentary. That's true. I, I was wearing uh, many hats, and um, I, and I do want to just mention that, that people can can see um, all those different hats, so to speak, or they can see the film itself um, this Wednesday uh, night at the um, Rialto Cinemas Elmwood Elmwood Theater. Um, on Ashby and College in Berkeley uh, at 7 p.m. But um, for, forgive me that that little um, plug. But I do want to let people know the, the film will be there, and the the attorneys from the film will be there, so everyone can ask their questions if we don't answer anything today. Uh, and also that the film will come out on DVD in a month. So if people can't make it there, um, they will have a way to see the film shortly. Um, but uh you're absolutely right i was a documentary filmmaker but also and the reality was probably the only way i could interview deborah was to be integrated into the legal team and and so i was i was the official legal videographer and so when i'm interviewing deborah in the film uh it's actually in an attorney client room uh, at the prison in that context where I would 
come to the prison with the lawyers. I myself would wear a suit and tie and kind of look like a lawyer, except I didn't have a law degree and I had a camera instead. And that worked for the prison and, and that was how, um, I got access to part of the footage about Debbie and then sort of putting my media hat back on. Uh, I also made a separate documentary about various programs at the prison that the prison was willing to allow people to film. And, of course, Debbie was involved in a lot of those programs by uh, by getting college degrees from behind bars, uh, being in the church and the gospel choir, as we mentioned, uh, working at a factory in the prison, because she was really kind of an all-star in terms of rehabilitation, trying to take advantage of everything she possibly could do. And the reason I had to go through all of those uh, extra steps to get access is because the California prisons don't normally allow the media in with with really any kind of freedom. They have a rule that I believe is unconstitutional, but they have a rule against allowing uh, members of the media to film interviews with inmates. So we had to go on this sort of crazy adventure just to be able to tell this story. And I did include some mention of, of, of that in the film because I want people to understand that, uh, that there must be many other stories like this that simply aren't told. And, and I hope that by including the the sort of the great lengths we had to go to uh to tell Debbie's story people will will make that logical connection and also we we do point out in the film we show some st- statistics with regard to how many women in prison are survivors of abuse and how the the population of women behind bars in the US has just skyrocketed over the last 3 decades it's gone up um uh, from, you know, 20,000 around uh, 1980 or so across the country to, uh, you know, well over, I think, 130,000 today. So that's, you know, that's a very rapid and uh, steep uh, increase when you chart it out. So, Joshua, you know, your law specialty has absolutely nothing to do with domestic violence. Um, and here it is. So you're having to learn a whole new area of law and you're being filmed learning this area of law. Yes. And you're actually doing a great job in the film explaining the law to us uh, as viewers. And I'm and I'm wondering what both the advantage and disadvantage of that was, uh, especially over time, because this was a case that seemed like it was going to be open shut or as we should say really shut open (laughs) to a case that wound up uh, continuing for over seven years well you know i think my naivete uh turned out to be one of my strengths um in part because you know first of all i I made one of the key mistakes i was talking to a seasoned public defender early on and he said wait a second you know have you befriended your client and I said, well, yeah, I would consider her a friend. And he said, oh, that's the biggest mistake you can make as a defense attorney. You never do that because your own well-being, your own happiness, your own emotions rise and fall with the case. And that, you know, you, you lose your professionalism. But I wouldn't have stuck 
through with this case. Um, in fact, and this is no disrespect to the other legal teams, there were many, many legal teams that ultimately were had to be unsuccessful. You know, they lost at the trial court and they said, okay, my job here is done. That was all I was charged with doing. And, you know, but Nadia and I took the position that our job was to get Debbie out of prison and whether ultimately that meant we had to rent a tow truck and pull bars off of, off of the side of the prison or, or go to the Supreme Court, whatever it was, we were going to do it. And, and, and had we not made that mistake, quote unquote, the, the best mistake we ever made, you know, we wouldn't have had that friendship that kind of kept us going because once once you really befriend someone particularly someone as charismatic and and delightful as debbie you can't even enjoy anything you, know, you can't enjoy your vacation because you're like, well my friend's suffering in, in this horrible condition she can't see the night stars the way i can so that kind of was one advantage of, of having no experience the other advantage i think was sort of a naive optimism you know when i've talked to seasoned um uh, attorneys who represent uh, inmates, for example, you know, they're all, they all seem kind of depressed because they've been through this system so many times. They know that nothing works. They know that all the presumptions are against you and that it's the rule of man, not of law. You know, random bureaucrats will just decide something and you have to spend 12 years litigating, you know, whether you can bring a camera into the prison or whatever. So, you know, we had this optimism that as civil lawyers who are representing, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies that, that we had, you know, so the, the system should work in our favor because we were, you know, we were, uh, professionals and the, you know, and so it was a rude awakening in, in many ways, but I think it also, it was so upsetting to us that the system was failing us time and time again um, that, that we were, were part of that. Our motivation to keep going was our outrage. Well, it can't be this way. It can't be this way. Whereas a lot of people, I think, who have experience are just, yeah, it's this way and it sucks and it's terrible. Um, and I think that part of the reason that audiences really connect with the with the movie, and I'll, I'll do my plug, it's uh, March 28th at 7 p.m. at the Elmwood on uh, College Nashby in Berkeley. But, but, you know, part of the reason the audiences really connect with, with the movie and that Yoav's movie, I think, um, besides his incredible filmmaking, you know, is the human drama of seeing us and, and Debbie go through this kind of uh, you know, starting kind of naively and optimistic, and then seeing this bubble of reality burst over us, and then and then all of us struggling through, you know, to t- to get her out. Well, I so I think that one of the things though you still haven't answered is what is it was it like being filmed uh, yes. <laughs> through the forest <laughs> <laughs> somehow? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, Yoav is a very diligent uh, filmmaker, and if you ever appear in one of his documentaries, you should expect that there's lots of B-roll of you brushing your teeth and you know petting the dog and going for a walk. You know, he was there like all the time with the camera, and as you see in the movie, he's ultimately rewarded because a lot of things sort of spontaneously happen that are that are very dramatic in the movie that. You know, if he hadn't been there, he wouldn't have caught. You know, it, it is, uh, to some degree, of course, invasive, especially to have a film crew embedded with you for five years. And as an attorney, it really freaks you out uh, instinctively because the whole idea of attorney-client privilege and of and of uh, attorney work product is that these are this is all secret. You know, no one will ever know about this. And yet you have, like, you know, Yoav with a camera. I think for me it wasn't so hard um, because I knew Yoav personally. He was a close friend of mine, and we were sort of, you know, best men at each other's wedding kind of relationship and i had actually appeared in a in another film of his uh, as an actor before or actually while i was in law school um so for me this sort of became the next project that we were working on together and I, it was easier for me i think for nadia um it was a lot harder my my co-counsel because she hadn't had that experience um but but the one thing that i think was difficult for me uh, that i that i did sort of struggle with and and debbie sort of interestingly helped me through this was you know, my backstory was as 
what, what we now call a survivor uh, of domestic violence myself as a kid and having a violent alcoholic uh, stepfather when I was a, a child. And um, that, of course, became part of the narrative and became part of the movie, which for me, my instinct was, no, no, this isn't about me. This isn't about my experience. This is about Debbie and her story. And, of course, you know, I became un- unwittingly really kind of an actor in Debbie's story and my backstory came into it. And it was, I had some, some discomfort with it. Um, but ultimately, uh, my decision was really based on, on what Debbie wanted to do. And what Debbie wanted to do was to have her story told because we never knew whether she was going to get out or not. And she felt that Yoav was, was such a, a gifted filmmaker and that whatever he came out with, whether she got out or not, that her story would inspire changes to the system and inspire um, young people to not make the decisions that she'd made in her life and to hopefully help to end this cycle of violence. We're talking about the film Crime After Crime, uh, the new film by Yoav Potash that's playing Wednesday evening in Berkeley. And we're joined by Joshua Safran, who is one of the attorneys featured in the film, as well as by Yoav on telephone. Yoav, um, you know, this, the basic story of what happened to Debbie is she gets, gets involved with this young man who's charismatic. She's from a family that seems like that there's a lot of boundary issues, a lot of domestic violence, a lot of abuse. Um, his family also seems to be very similar. And eventually he winds up pimping her and she winds up having to first be a prostitute for him. Um, totally unknown to her that that's what she was being led into and then also um, uh, brutally beaten and controlled in many different ways uh, now that in itself is a story that's really interesting although we've heard it in different ways many a time and through the course of the film we find that because um, it's called crime after crime that maybe is the first and perhaps the second crime but really what you're really tracking in this film is uh, the justice system and how the justice system has really failed um, both Debbie and she of course as a stand-in for many women of domestic violence um, so how did you think about how you wanted to tell this story, especially as it was unfolding over time? And I know you are in the role of director, producer, and editor, so uh, your vision must have had to completely change as as new information kept on coming out. In, in some ways, you're right. I mean, I think there, there were two main ideas I had from the beginning of making this film that, that did not change, regardless of all the twists and turns that the case took, and, and it took many. <laughs> um, but the, the two ideas I had was, was one, the, uh, the lawyers are characters, too. That's how I thought of it. And that meant from the beginning that, that I wanted to portray Joshua and, Na- and Nadia in a more nuanced, rounded way than many other criminal justice documentaries that, or even just dramatic films that I've seen. Uh, it seems like a lot of times in in a story where it's about, you know, will they get someone out of prison, the lawyers are just kind of these flat vehicles that just fill in information and, and spout legalese. And I really didn't want to do that, especially knowing Joshua personally, I knew that he's an interesting person. The fact that he's an Orthodox Jew, I thought was a an interesting angle. And then he's going into a prison representing uh, a very Christian African-American woman. So on the surface, they seem to have nothing in common. And yet, as you watch and learn, you realize they have plenty in common. 
Um, and, and essentially the same is true of Nadia. I knew that for different reasons, she was a very compelling character in her own right. So that was my first idea. And then the, then the second um, was simply that from the beginning of the film, from, from about five minutes in, you should be thinking, does she get out? Um, because you, you start to understand that she doesn't belong in prison and that we won't answer that question, of course, until uh, close to the end of the film. And and uh, with those two kind of ideas as my guiding principles, um, it, it, it just kind of always oriented me uh, as to how the story would be told. And as it ha you know, I never, which is a, it's a roundabout way of saying I never set out to um, portray prosecutors as the villain um but uh, as the case unfolded they they sort of <laughs> tended to step into that role um there you know there was an opportunity for present-day prosecutors to look back at this case and say you know what the people who were in our shoes 20 years ago made some mistakes uh it's time to set this woman free and just when it seemed that that is what they were going to do uh, they decided to change course, and um, you know, I, I, I just tried to tell the story and tell what they were doing and tell how Debbie and her legal team were responding, uh, and it's um, it ended up being you know a very high profile case, and and I hope on some levels a very influential case, um, and I would like to to say one one other thing about sort of the impact that the film is is now uh having um you know one, one big highlight is that now in other states they're looking to pass laws to help give the quote-unquote debbies who are behind bars there a chance to get out and in fact in new jersey uh sort of the 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 kind of official running title of a bill that's being proposed is debbie's law and it was I mean, the, the film really directly led to this proposed legislation. And, in fact, a teenage girl who lives in New Jersey saw the film, was so inspired, she organized a screening, got a state senator to come to see the film, and that's how this legislation is getting off the ground um, there in New Jersey. So, uh, you know, we're really excited that the film is helping to make change happen. No, it's really interesting because I think that that's terrific, and I think that there's this this ethical issue that I th comes out in this film, which has to do with truth. Like, who, uh, what stories do you need to have told? Um, and in some ways, everybody winds up being quite vulnerable. Uh, you know, th who's been abused by whom, for example? Whether those things need to be there or not be there? Is there something about the fact that both of the lawyers talk about? you know, your experience of domestic violence or the daughter of Debbie talks about what happened to her. You know, I wonder about if there comes to be a point where what becomes the most useful way, if like you're doing many different things or one thing. And I'm wondering, Joshua, how you think about that now, both because um, one of the characters in the film also is your daughter. Yeah. And uh, so you're creating something that of that she lived through um, and that eventually, you know, or maybe she has seen, but something about all those kinds of issues and and what's important to tell and what is important to leave aside. 
I guess one of the, the things that's so powerful about this story and I think what's so incredible about the movie is you realize that these legacies of domestic violence that take place from generation to generation and get passed on cut across racial lines, class lines, religious lines, uh, political ideology lines. You know, I mean, that, that everyone, half the people in the movie end up having this. And I think in many ways for, for a lot of people, certainly for me, one of the most powerful scenes is, is my, is my daughter's involvement as a seven year old at, at this point in the movie. And what I hope the legacy of that we've broken that cycle for her. That's something that she never, um, God willing, never has to deal with. And I think that the movie, I hope, you know, and I think it was Debbie's belief about about this film because she saw a rough cut of it was that this movie would excuse people from having to undergo the experience of domestic violence. They could sort of see the movie, say, I get it. I get the issue. I don't need to undergo it myself to know it's bad and wrong and advocate for change and to change minds. And this movie has sort of done the suffering for us and and, and has made a fixing out of it, has, has made a healing out of it. Terrific. The film is entitled Crime After Crime. If you want more information on the film, you can go to crimeaftercrime.com. I want to thank Yoav Hotash, the director of the film, and Joshua Saffron for joining us today. You can see the film this coming Wednesday at the Elmwood Theater in Berkeley, 2996 College Avenue, and it will be released on DVD next month. And I'll be back at the end of April for my next show. Uh, this is Raina Cowan. Thank you so much for joining me. the most respected activists and scholars from around the world will converge for a public symposium titled Radical Past, Radical Futures, Conversations on Social Movements. Speakers include social historian Peter Leinbaugh, feminist pioneer Selma James, Gustavo Esteva, founder of the University of the Earth in Mexico, Guyanese activist Anda Ye, Common Ground Collective co-founder Scott Crow, scholar of East Asian social movements George Katsifikas, and ultra-globalization activist Ruth Rayton. It takes place at the California Institute for Integral Studies, 1453 Mission Street, in San Francisco, on Friday, March 30th, from 3 to 7 p.m. Any proceeds benefit CIIS. This event is wheelchair accessible and co